Hi everybody, my name is Dean Saffron. I'm a commercial and documentary photographer filmmaker. I specialize in human interest stories. You can view my work at deansaffron.com. I also love all furry babies, so I simply had to start a podcast called Furfillment, where each week I will explore a different person's life story and that of their pets. If you want to be on the show or you know a person that should be on the show, please contact us at our Facebook page, Furfillment. Okay, sit back, relax and enjoy. Hello, everybody. Today, I am really excited because we have Miss Corinne. Now, Corinne is a South African girl that owns a cafe in Parisian Beach, where I live. Anyway, after talking to her, I realized she's also an elite athlete, loves animals like everyone who's on fulfillment, and this will be her story. Hey, Corinne, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Safi. It's good to be here um, in a noisy cafe. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we're actually doing this interview in Corinne's Cafe, which if anyone ever gets the chance and is in Parisian, you have to go to Skull Cafe. It is seriously the best place. I'm, I'm more a regular here than I am at home having dinner with my wife. So thank you for that, Corinne. Uh, it might cause a divorce, but uh, thanks anyway. I'm, I'm stoked that you've got this great place where I can eat real food. You guys are always welcome. <laughs> okay. Now let's talk about this South African accent. How long have you um, lived in Australia, firstly? We moved to Australia just a little bit more than four years ago and uh, started our journey off in Sydney um, where we lived for two years and then got the opportunity to move to the Sunshine Coast and um, this is where we've been for the last two years and we just love it. Oh, wow. I mean, that just shows how entrepreneurial you are, which also brings us to you being an athlete because you've only been here four years and you've managed to open up the most successful cafe in Parisian. I mean, were you always business-minded? No, not really. Um, I think I've always had the dream of owning a coffee shop. Um, But only when we moved to the Sunshine Coast and my husband Gary decided that he's tired of the corporate and all the things that go with that, um, we started looking for a business and Skull Coffee popped up um, on the charts and we managed to secure the the buy and here we are and he's now the one running my dream and um, I'm still running and doing other stuff and he gets to do the coffee shop. Oh, and also... um And this is what drew me to talking to you. You love animals as much as I do and a big part of your cafe. And it's not a plug for the cafe, but if you've got a pet, you can bring it down and you can get puppy chinos and everything else like puppy ice creams. So um, let's talk about what pet you've got at the moment. My girl is a German Shepherd and Coco is eight years old. We got her through German Shepherd Rescue in Sydney um, just a little bit over a year, no, almost a year after we moved to Sydney. And um, it, it, we went through the stage where when we left South Africa, it was very traumatic for me to leave my, my pets behind. Um, I managed to find a good home for my little Jack Russell. Um, and 
I had to unfortunately put my cocker spaniel down. So Fritz was almost 15, old, started losing sight and hearing. And it just wouldn't be fair to try and rehome him with another family. Um, not at that age. And um, I kept hanging on to him till the very last week before we actually had to leave, before I could put him down. And so for me, it was very traumatic um, experience and when we moved over my son kept saying to me oh when can we have a dog again when can we have a dog again and I said until my heart has healed we will not have another dog <laughs> um, and then we just got to the stage where I think we all needed that fur therapy in our lives we all went through the stage where we needed that four-legged creature to make us whole again and um, so my son said, oh, I want a German Shepherd puppy. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't know about puppies. And we were renting a house, so it's very difficult to get permission from your owners to actually have a pet. And um, we looked, and then he said to me, oh, Mom, we can find a dog on German Shepherd Rescue. And I was like, what's German Shepherd Rescue? I don't even know what German Shepherd Rescue is. And he said, oh, look. So he went and did all the research and came to me, and he said, here's the site. Just fell in love with this dog. She just stole our heart. Um, super, super dog. And we went home and we are like, okay, now we've got to get the permission from the owner of the house. And first he said no, just blatantly no. And I said to Gary, we sat outside on the patio and I said to him, you know, let's phone Albert, who was the owner of the house, and just chat to him, you know. And um, it's not, she's not a puppy, she's four years old, she's well-trained, she's an outside dog. Um, and she would be great for, for my son, for Ricky, um, as an only child um, battling to settle down in Australia. The therapy that I know dogs bring um, would just be amazing for him. And um, it's, it's uh, I mean, if we go back to actually having to leave a country and let your furry babies go and have to put one down um people don't understand about that resettlement how hard that actually is because i mean they're your family members but then you find this little baby and it's helping the little man feel better was it really four years old, your your furry baby, or was it like one week old and you were just saying it was four years and trained? No, she was really four. <laughs> <laughs> That's another Australian mistake you've made. What a rookie. <laughs> I'm sure people will be making comments on how to get a dodgy dog through real estate a little bit better. Um, look, I, when he saw the baby and you picked her up, how did that therapy work for him? So when we brought her home after finally getting the permission, we never told him. We kept it a secret. So he came home from school the afternoon and I was waiting in the garage with her. And as the door opened and he came riding in with his bike, he just saw this dog and he was just hysterical. Um, and they just took to each other straight away. He's he taught her small little tricks. She does the high five and the and she crawls and so it's been good. Um, but it's also given him the responsibility that I think children need to learn at a at a younger age. Um, part of the agreement was she needs to be walked, she needs to be fed, she needs to be cuddled. 
And the not so good part of having fur babies is cleaning up the mess. So that's definitely his job. I've got this thing that I want to come up with spray that you can spray on dog poo that will make it disintegrate and not harm the environment. <laughs> How good would that be? And you could do it to people you don't like. I don't know if it would work on people. But that'd be great because there's be a great. lot of bad people out there that are no better than dog poo and you could just go and it'd be done. Oh, I'm, I'm, I think you're a genius. I'm going to vote for you for the first South African female Prime Minister of Australia oh, if thanks. you can pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, look, let's let's talk about, I don't know how old you were um, when you started running, but tell me a bit about your running career because you became quite a champion. So the running goes back a very long time in my life. My dad was a runner and um, he would come home from work and I would say to him, are oh, you going to run today? And he'd be, yeah, 4Ks or now we, I want to go with. So just trampled along and came back um, and then I would just do on school athletics do the 1500 meters not to go anywhere with it but just to take part for the team and um, and always ended up under the first three but made sure at the next feat that I was actually disqualified I would pull off the track because I hated it really um, I was a ballerina, so all my time went into dancing and not so much into the running thing. Hold on a second. You're like a ballerina, but you wanted to run with your dad? Is that how it sort of came about? You just wanted to spend quality time with dad? Yeah. And that's why you did it? I think it was just something special that we had, and we shared that love for running um, right up till until he died, um, a little bit more than a year ago. So... Um, I managed to do a lot of amazing runs with my dad and I've got a lot of fond memories um, of time spent with him on the road and um, making sure we got to the end and the very last race we did together was um, the South African Two Oceans Half Marathon in Cape Town and um, we ran it together and I think from about 10Ks I had my hand in his and I was just dragging him along. And um, he was really battling, and we got to the end, and the last stretch coming into the stadium, he said to me, oh, I'm so feeling sick. And I'm like, no time to get sick now, because we've got a couple of minutes to get through that line before they do the cutoff. So there's no time for stopping, being sick, vomiting, whatever it is you need to do. When we cross the line, then you can do that. Um, and we managed to cross that line with 20 seconds to spare. I said, now you can retire from running. That, that's it, but not before then. I do have a question about runners. Um, I've never in my life seen a smiling runner. Was, and is that like, I mean, I even try and make runners smile when I go past them in the national park. Not once have I had a smiling runner. Is that like... What, what, what's the go there? Are you too focused or people just don't like smiling and running? I'd like to say you've obviously not gone past me. <laughs> <laughs> not that I run and smile all the time. I used to say to people, look around you and appreciate what you see, the nature, the views, the just being able to be out there. But then there's our times when you're not feeling it. And you don't want people to talk to you and you don't want to smile and you don't want to appreciate anything around you. You just want to get through the race or through the distance that you've got to do for the day. Um, I think for me, I've got to the point where 
when I run for purpose or with a purpose, for something, for a reason, um, the motivation of getting out there and doing it for something or somebody carries me through the training, the hard times when you're not feeling it. Um, but just having that appreciation of being able to be out running, being healthy enough to run. Um, and that's probably something that's come along the last couple of years in my life, really appreciating the ability to be out there running and training and being healthy enough to do it. Because, I mean, it's innate that we all ran. We, we ran as children. Um, you would have to hunt and gather and you ran and you ran. So it's in our DNA, but we've kind of forgotten to, to run, I think, nowadays, except for the select few that, that find the joy in it. I mean, would you like to see more people out there running? I think everybody's different. So we all have to find that something that makes us move, whether it is running, walking, dancing, rock climbing, whatever ticks and floats your boat, just get out there and move a bit. It doesn't have to be running. It's just we have to find something that makes that's passion that you can be passionate about, something that makes you tick, I think. Um, running for me has been a great tool of getting to know people, meeting people, and also do something back or give something back to people um, and communities. And, and that's why I do it. That's why I love it. Do you run with your German Shepherd? I used to take her with me. Um, on the days when I've got lots of time. Okay. <laughs> <He> looks, <clears throat> she likes stopping. She and stops and she smells the roses. And um, I think it's unfair to try and force her, you know, pull her all the time. Um, the rule in Australia about having a do dog on a leash makes it hard for me to run with her. She runs much better off the leash. Um, when we lived in Sydney, we had a natural... I don't know, bushland behind the house with some tracks that I used to take her on and then I would unclip her and then she could run and smell and I would keep going and she would just come on her own um, which made it enjoyable for both of us. Yes. Um, but on the Sunshine Coast I've not had that um, opportunity yet so I go for a run and I come back and then I take her for a short walk around the block just to make her come out with me and spend some time with me. She loves being on the beach so we've, um, we got to retrain to get used to the water. She hated the water when we moved here. Really? She did. I don't know if she had a fear for water as a puppy or something happened. Um, initially, she wouldn't come close to the water. And then we gradually brought her closer, played with her ball in the, in the shallow water. Um, and she's come into the water now and she, she chases after it and she loves being on the beach. So that's been good and that's where I can take her off the lead. And she, she's a very boisterous eight-year-old. She sometimes thinks she's only eight months. Um, so she storms the people and she, she, she wants to play. She wants to say hello to the other dog. She's very dog-friendly. But it, it does cause um, some anxiety with people with their dogs because she comes at such a speed. <laughs> and she's huge. And she is big. So um, I think I normally say to the people, you know, she's, she's dog-friendly. Just, she just wants to say hello. She just wants to say good morning and have a smell. And then she moves on. She doesn't hang around the other dog. So, but she, she just wants to say hello. Does she prefer 
um, people than animals, other dogs, like to greet? No, she goes for the dogs oh. and um, has a sniff around and then off she goes. She's a real socialite. Now, with your running, let's talk about your career because you obviously preferred to do your ballet, but um, w- what was the, the moment in your life that you decided to be a runner? The running started at uh, university. Okay. Um, and my best friend was getting married. This is such a chick story. So um, she was getting married and it was like, oh, we've got to lose weight, you know? Brides have to be thin, and so we're going to start running. But hold on, why is that? I mean, um, why does a bride have to be thin? What's what, what's that all about? I don't know. <laughs> I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. I mean, I, there's a lot of grooms out there that could use a little bit of Jenny Craig. I think it's. I mean, it's a couple of years ago, and I mean, I'm talking about 1995, 1995. So you're a youngster, early 20s, keen as. The bodies and so off we started running the two of us and um i remember sitting on the pavement after one run and she said to me oh you know what we should join this running club down the road she said um you know these days when you complete a race they actually give you medals no more in those days we got like little um pocket that you sewed onto your tracksuits. Oh, like a badge. Yeah, a badge. That that used to be the big thing. And then they started doing medals. And I was like, really? She said, yep. So Who or, doesn't want a medal? Who doesn't want a medal? I'm going to start sure. running now. I'm going to run home. <laughs> <laughs> so off we went. I joined the club. She never did. I joined the club and started running. And that, that was the end. And at that stage, I think... I ran differently to what I run now. At that stage, I would pick a race and make the decision. Like, I think one of my very first big races I did was um, the city to city newspaper run between Johannesburg and Pretoria. It was run over 50 kilometers, and it was one of the races my dad also did previously. And um, so that was the first one. Trained for it, ran the race finished it and then didn't run again for like three four months not one really not one step and then decided oh there's something called the two oceans and i made made friends and they all were big runners so off to cape town we set and we ran the two oceans and in that year it was still a six hour cutoff um and we made it i came in and i think five hours 56 minutes or something like that ridiculous and after that again, two, three months, no running, and then choose a race, train for it, run it, stop. And, and, and that's how I went at that stage for quite a couple of years. And then the running really started for me when I got divorced, that it became my therapy. So come rain, come sunshine, come wind, come water, I was out running every single morning. Um from a therapeutic point of view and that's where it started for me really running every single day so up to that point I, I did so many races um marathons ultra marathons and then when I met Gary um suddenly I had a partner that supported my running for the first time um being next to the road being at the end bringing my jacket carrying my bag making sure I had chocolates next to the road whatever I needed he was just a super supporter 
which made it easy for me then to get to that competitive level um, eventually was because I had the support at home. So when was your first most successful competition? I, I tried a, a triathlon that didn't go well because I couldn't, um, I, I didn't make it through the water so well. Oh, tell me about that now, listeners. This is amazing. I've got to confess, I heard this story before we even started, which is unlike my style, but listen to this. Corinne goes and gets a wetsuit, and instead of giving them the right athletic wetsuit, it's two sizes too small. What happens, Corinne? So I um, decided to do triathlon. I got bored just with running, so I needed to do something different and um, got myself signed up for this race, got a wetsuit, um, which I didn't realize at the time was two sizes too small, got to the race and then on the morning they decide whether it's a wetsuit or non-wetsuit, depending on water temperature. So right at the end they say, oh, wetsuit's allowed. So dashed or pulled it on. I've never swam with a wetsuit until that day. Is that harder to do? It's different. I think a lot of athletes will tell you it's really different. Um, Your strokes are different. It's a different feeling in the water. Um, And until you've done it and you've actually trained with it, it it is quite different from just swimming normally, Um, which I didn't realize at that stage. Um, Never done open water swim until that day either. Were you scared? Very. So the gun goes and off we jump into the water and I realise I cannot breathe because every strike I take, it's so cold and I'm battling to breathe and I'm exhaling and I can't get air back into my lungs. Not realising that the wetsuit is actually compressing more on my chest than what it is doing anything else. So I got to the first buoy and I hung on there for dear life and told myself from an athlete's perspective, get your head into this game. You're somewhere between nowhere. You've got to get to the other side. Doesn't matter how you do it, you're going to get there. So I pushed myself forward, managed to do one lap through this dam, lake, whatever they want to call it in Australia. The and Bass Strait. Yeah. <laughs> the and wild. Then, and then you get to, you've got to run across this little island and then do a second lap. So when I got to this island, eventually, um, I think I was like the second last person out of the water. Gary was standing there and I said to him and the organizer, I said, you need to get this wetsuit off me. I cannot breathe. And as they took it off, I started vomiting water and I pulled out of the race there and then I finally ended up in hospital later that day, um, classified as a near drowning. Um, and for, for months after that, I couldn't even just look at water in a pool without feeling that tightness in my chest. Um, And then I had another go at a triathlon race where um, it was in a ski dam and the organizer said to me, you know, if you stick on the middle island side, the water's shallow, you can put your feet down. Anytime you start uh, panicking, just put your feet down, you'll be able to stand in the water, which I then did. So I managed to get through the swim, got onto the bike, did the run and felt great about that one. Went to do another third one couple of months later um, from going flat water to it looked like the ocean um, in a couple of hours with wind picking up 500 meters into the swim I put my hand up I realized I've got a son at home that needs me 
So I am not doing this to myself. Wow. <laughs> and I pulled out. And then I was really disappointed not being able to, to get into something that has a little bit more than just running. Um, and then Gary said to me, you know, what about duathlon? I'm like, what is duathlon? I don't even know what it is. What is it? Can you tell us all? So duathlon is where you, you just run and cycle, but you do two runs. So the standard would be a 10K run to start off with, uh, followed by 40Ks on your bike, and then you come back and you do another 5K run. So that's more or less a standard duathlon distance. I'd never even heard of this thing. Has it been around or did you just make it up? No, it's been around a long time. <laughs> um, you, you find this new passion where you could use your natural ability and you could forget the swimming, which was obviously your weakest uh, link, and particularly after having a near-death experience. And for those who have nearly drowned, they've scientifically proven that what happens is each breath you go to take becomes harder and harder, and that's the first sign of drowning even if you come up and you want to breathe your lungs are starting to shut off so it won't take any more water into your to your lungs you, you know um so you, you had a really hard time and you moved into this due due athlon still don't believe it's a thing um what what happened then so i chose a race just randomly um, got to the race in the morning with my old bike and as we pulled in I said to Gary Jeepers look at all these bikes you know they're like carbon fiber they look really expensive and I still had an old rally RC3000 I'll never forget this blue bike all metal heavy as hell and um, that morning we still dusted all the cobwebs off it before we actually loaded it onto the car and um, we get to the, the race and I'm watching all the athletes and putting your bike in the view um, where you change over from the running to the cycling and laid everything out my towel with my gloves and it's a energy bar and everything is nicely sorted I'm a very organized person so everything's got to be perfect next to the the bike and so we set off for the run and um, we have to do three laps more or less three k's um, and I was in the front bundle, and then on the third lap, I realized I had to make a pit stop. So I just pulled off, and um, now you've got to take this whole big suit one piece off so you can actually have your pit stop. And then that's got to come back up again on your wet, sweat body. So that's not easy. That's so hard work. It is. So by the time I got to the, the, the changeover, Gary's like, where were you? I said, I had to make a pit stop. And he's like, no way. I said, yes, ways. But so I put my gloves on and my energy bar and I take all the time in the world. And by the time I finally go, there's hardly anybody left. So off on the bike I go, up the road. Unbeknown to me, Gary's standing next to the road and he's standing talking. This lady standing and the one says, Oh, yeah, no, my daughter won the SA champs, the triathlon champs, the two weeks before. And then they look at Gary and they're like, oh, who are you supporting? And he's like, my wife. Oh, who's your wife? So, Corinne Ross. Oh, we don't know her. She, no, it's this is her first race. So, this lady looks and she says, and she chose the Western Province Championships to do as her first race. And Gary's like, yeah. And in the interim, he's thinking, oh, my God, what did we do? So the next thing he hears this tick, 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 
and he looks up and he says, here comes Karim on a bike. And something got stuck in my spoke. So it kept on making this little noise, tick, 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 as the wheel goes around. And um, he just hung his head and the ladies are like, oh, that bike does not sound good. And Gary just doesn't say anything. He, he was just refusing to tell them that that's actually his wife that he's just spoken <laughs> No, he's looking down, he's going, looking around, and you're trying to smile at him, and he's, like, reading his newspaper. I get that. It's like every time I surf, I'm, like, say to my wife when she's sitting on the beach, honey, did you see that wave? And she says yes, but she's got her head so far in a book, there's no way she did. You know, it's an impossibility. So I get that. But in your defence, um, you're like Farlap. You've got these jockey weights on you. You've got a weight belt having such an old prehistoric bike and these other people have got killer carbon beasts. I mean, you did well. Tick, tick, tick. So what happened then? So came in eventually. I, I caught up quite a, quite a lot with the front group at that stage on my old bike and um, did the last run, finished the race, loaded the bike back in the car and home we went. And then the next thing, I got a call and they said, um, they're from Western Province and they'd like to invite me to the prize giving. So, You're kidding me. So I said to Gary, I've been invited to the prize giving and I've got no idea why. Because according to me, I came in like sixth or seventh or something like that. Anyway, so off we went to the prize giving in the evening. And it turns out, though I finished sixth or seventh overall, I won my age group, which was the 40 plus so 40 to 44 group and I was like amazed and then they said oh therefore you've been chosen to go to the South African championships so we go from having no knowledge of duathlon into you're going to SA champs and I said to Gary I need a new bike this is like Cinderella this is unbelievable and so off I go, buy a new bike. So you're about to go to the South African Championships. What little tricks did you learn, like uh, with your bike, your changes, um, any other tricks that you learned? So you learn to pee in the run and not stop. Um, That's like a party trick. It is. So you, you learn to just take an extra sachet of water and as you run, you just rinse um, while you go. And I finished 11th in, in the World Champs that year. So 11th in the World um, is, for me, a phenomenal achievement. I never thought I would ever get to that, ever. Um, and it's something that, that I hold very dear as an achievement in life, that I managed to go and do that. Um, and, and particularly when, when, I mean, like, let's be honest here. Uh, five minutes ago, you're going for your first ever ride and it's the provincial championships and you, you win that. Then you go to the nationals and then you know, this, this is your third run at anything that's serious and you come 11 in the world. Come on, girl. Give me a high five. There's a really interesting twist that happens here. I woke up one morning, um, felt a bit dizzy thought I just got out of bed too quickly, um, put my running gear on, met up with my running partner, went for a 12k run, came back, um, set off to work and felt a funny twitch in my face, on the right side of my face and I 
remember it's a it's an awkward feeling and didn't think much of it um got the things that i needed to get got back into my car looked in the mirror and i thought my face is pulling a bit but I don't have time for this right now because I've got this <laughs> workshop that needs to be done. Set off to the office, which was not far down the road. Um, and while I was at the office, just getting all the things together, started feeling really nauseous, lightheaded. Um, and then realizing as people came into the, the guys that I worked with, collecting and loading the stuff out of the boardroom where I was sitting, that in my head I was wanting to tell them stuff but my mouth wouldn't form the words quick enough um, and and one of my colleagues walked in and he said to me are you okay and I said I'm not feeling 100% and he said to me you don't look good and I said well I don't have time now but when I get to the hospital where I'm having this workshop I'll just ask one of the surgeons to have a quick check for me and um, in the interim I phoned Gary who was having his Christmas lunch with his staff and um, he said to me, what's going on? I said, I'm not feeling well. And he said, what's wrong? And I explained to him, he said to me, please phone the doctor. And um, I phoned our GP and, and she was unavailable. She was with a patient at that moment. And I said to the receptionist, listen, this is what I'm experiencing. Can she please phone me? And she phoned me about 15 minutes later. And she said to me, what's going on? Explained to her and she said to me, where are you? And I said, I'm at the office. And she said, is there somebody there that can take you to the hospital? I said, yes, they are. And she said, I think you're having a stroke. So I suggest you get into a car and get somebody to drive you to the hospital straight away. And in this period of just packing up my bags, um, my right arm went numb. How long is this period of time, do you think, that this uh, transpired? So from the time I think the face twitch started to my arm being numb is probably an hour and a half maybe long process it's not like two minutes no it, it happened over a period of time because i was so busy doing all these other things but it could have been a shorter time but i wasn't really keeping track of time because i was no. busy just getting things done and you're completely coherent yes. in your mind but you're not able to get the words out you want and was it slurred or any of those sort of things you don't know i don't know so i remember our receptionist walking in and she said to me um stick out your tongue which i did afterwards she told me it fell to the right which nobody told me at that time so but i didn't know and anyway so we got in the car and one of the managers drove me to the hospital and it's two k's from my office to the to the nearest hospital and um in that two k's my right leg went numb so by the time i got to the hospital i couldn't move my arm i could still move my fingers and i could wiggle my toes but I, my leg was numb my arm was numb and my speech was really slurred i battled to put two words together um without stuttering and stumbling and what went through your mind when that this whole process, you know, you're an extreme athlete, you're 11 in the world, 11th in the world, and then all of a sudden you can't feel your arm, can't feel your legs, you can only move your fingers, your slurred speech, like, let's be honest, that must be terrifying in your mind, or were you, what, what, what were you thinking? I remember thinking that this is not happening, whatever this is, it's not happening yep. and thinking whatever this is I will get through this too um, and then I remember Gary showing up at the hospital uh, 
Um, and the GP had phoned him and said to him, she's spoken to me and he needs to get to the hospital straight away. So he got jumped into his car and came across. Um, by then, the hospital staff and the doctor in the emergency care was just phenomenal. Um, so they had booked me for a scan. Um, unbeknown to me, he said to the radiologists that he wants the result of the scan immediately. He's sitting by the phone waiting. Um, so obviously if there's a bleed, they need to get me into surgery. If there isn't a bleed, then there is a possibility of um, an injection they give you to break down clots because there's two strokes. So it's either a bleed or it's clotting. Um, so... They did the scan and then they phoned him and said they couldn't find a bleed. So he realized it must be a clot somewhere. And because of the time frame, you've got a, like a four, maybe six hour window where this um, treatment can be administered and you can have very good results with it. If you go beyond it, it becomes the damage becomes more permanent. Um, and also um, it has a high mortality rate that particular procedure is my understanding but maybe i'm wrong i'll double check but because you're thinning out your um blood so much that you can literally bleed through your veins and all your organs and bleed to death but inside it is a high-risk therapy yeah so um when when they finished the scan and that was one of the probably the, the scariest moments I've ever gone through in my life was they were pushing me back to emergencies and the next thing the phone rang that one of the nurses or staff had with her and she nodded and then she said to the guys that were pushing me we've got to pick up the speed yeah and they started running with me and here I am thinking what's wrong can somebody please just talk to me and tell me what's going on what did they find in the scan but perhaps they can't tell you because then it would scare you and it would make things worse do you think i don't know but because I'm, i come in from a medical background yes. i needed to know what was going on i knew something was wrong but i needed to know what was wrong so when they pushed me into the emergencies and suddenly into this room and you've got people running around and they're testing a defib and they're, they're putting up lines and there's more people coming into the room and the doctor's saying to you, this is Dr. So-and-so, he's the neurosurgeon, and this is Dr. So-and-so, he's the cardiologist, and this is Doc... And you go, please somebody tell me. And Gary took one look at my face because I couldn't talk and said to the doctor, you need to just tell her what is going on right now. She so she can be know. calm. And then he said to me, okay, so no bleed. There must be a clot somewhere. We can administer the therapy, but these are the risks. So you go through a whole checklist of questions. Um, any recent surgery, any anything that could potentially lead to more bleeding would take you off this therapy immediately. So you've got to read through all the questions. Gary couldn't even sign on my behalf, so I had to sign with my left hand, make some scribble that I understood, that I didn't have any of the conditions, that they had listed um, and then they give you that very first shot and they actually sit and stand right next to the bed and they watch you for 15 minutes nobody takes their eyes off you to see if you have any adverse reaction to the medication 
um, and then they start waiting. So probably about 45 minutes after the medication started um, running into my system, I could feel some feeling return in my arm. And I started lifting my arm a little bit. Um, and they felt that that was a very good sign. Um, they kept me overnight in the high care unit. Um, and I remember just lying that night in that bed thinking, my son is 11 and he needs his mom. This is not going to stop here. This is not, this is not my life. This is not what I want. And I think the discipline from all the years of being an athlete and the dancing I've done, everything in my life came to that moment where when you put your mind to something, you can achieve it. Yes. And I said, I will get up out of this bed and I will walk again and I will run again. I might not be as fast as I used to be, but I will get back to that again. And so the next morning, um, I got up out of the bed and went to the bathroom without any assistance and the nurse nearly had a heart attack when she came back and found me outside my bed and I said to her I need to move because I need to get my my body needs to work again um, we got home that night and, and here's a, a funny part of this whole story and it, it goes back to my dogs at that stage so we got home that night and Gary says to me what are we having for dinner? And I said, I feel like a hamburger. So he's going to go and buy burgers. He tells me to sit on the couch and just sit, not do anything. But now looking through the patio door, the dogs are going ballistic outside. So my little fur babies, my Jack Russell and my Spaniel cannot understand why they cannot get to me yeah. and why I'm not coming towards them. So I finally get up drag my leg with me, open the door, but we had this massive big glass bottle standing on the patio. And um, the dogs got so excited and jumped up against me and I lost my footing, lost my balance, pushed back, pushed this bottle that went flying and broke in 10 million pieces on the patio. And here I'm standing frozen against the wall. The neighbor upstairs from me heard the commotion. Now she's hanging over and she's calling out to me, Queen, are you okay? Are you okay? And I cannot answer because I cannot speak. My speech has not come back. Back yet. And um, at that moment, Gary walks in the door and he finds me standing there. It's just glass all over and the dogs are frightened because of the breakage. And, and then he hears the neighbor calling out and he says, hang Tim. So first he ran upstairs and went to tell her that I am okay. But this is what had happened because nobody had then known that I actually had a stroke the day before and that I'm not intoxicated from a Christmas party or anything like that, that everybody was thinking, you know, that's possibly that time of the year. But that's kind of weird, isn't it? Because um, people often, someone could have a diabetic coma and, uh, and I've seen this out in Mount Isa. There was a, an Aboriginal gentleman that had um, collapsed in the street and everyone was just walking around except my wife and I ran over there and he wasn't drunk like everyone assumed. Um, he was basically in a coma uh, or close to. So, uh, 
it just shows, doesn't it, that people have these weird judgments. And that brings me to your next question. So as you will, you wanted to go back to running, um, how long did that process take? And did people look at you um, strangely because you couldn't move properly to begin with or you couldn't say what you wanted to say? What was the population's judgment um, unbeknowings that you'd had a stroke? So I guess because it was December, everything started slowing down and I was obviously on sick leave not going anywhere but we had Gary's parents who were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary and we had planned the trip and my GP said to me before we left she said to me you have to sing you know put music on in the car and sing and I said to her sing I cannot speak two words and want me to sing and she told me that your brain you've got to find new pathways your brain's got to find new pathways and you've got to force it so sing doesn't matter what it sounds like just sing it does to gary <laughs> especially in a car <laughs> poor bugger hey okay, that's all right that's love for you so yeah. we had a 14 hour drive 14 um, hours of listening to you sing well i did sleep some but thank of, the of lord the for that <laughs> so we did some singing and then i said to gary when we get to the other side um every morning we're going to walk around the block and by the end of the week that we spent there, I said to him, I'll be running lampposts because I will run again. And it was just the, the determination of getting my life back to normal or a new normal um, that kept me going. So every morning we'd get up and we'd just go walk first and then slowly we did this funny little run. Um, and I recovered. Um, I went back um, in the January and then we did some tests and that's when they discovered that the because everybody's initial reaction was oh it must be stress you know your new job and it's a lot of new things and um, you know maybe it's just stress and my, my GP said to me if it was stress the medication they give you to relax your speech would be firm would be perfect you'd be fine and you're not so it's not stress there's something else and she referred me to a stroke specialist um and when i saw him he said to me there's a he's seen a few of us through all his years um female normally in the range of 40 athletes and he has found the one common thing for all of us we carry a protein in our blood that causes clotting. Um, and I probably have a Raymond Ovale. So the hole in the heart that closes for babies at birth, in 20% of people, it doesn't close and you'll live asymptomatic. It will not do any harm to you. Um, but in my case, because of the running and everything I put my heart through, that hole kept on fluttering almost. So it never closed. And when I started making the clots, the clots went through the hole straight to my brain and then that's what caused the stroke. So my treatment involved then um, closing the hole with a device um, and I use something like an aspirin um, blood then every single day of my life for the rest of my life I'll never be able to go off it um, just to keep my blood thin and, and going and I'll be fine and 
following that um, treatment. So after that treatment, right, and um, how long was the period from when the stroke happened? Was it six months or a year that you were back to what you are now, which is exceptionally healthy? No, so I had stroke in December. I had my procedure done in February of the following year. And six weeks later, I ran my 10th Two Oceans Half Marathon. That's unbelievable. You were a hero. It's almost like at the time you get, it's a second lease on life. I needed to, I needed to live every single day. That's when you realize that life is so short and what I did this morning might not matter tonight. Um, I have very strong beliefs about in, in our household. We don't leave the house angry. We don't go to bed at night and we don't leave the morning without saying, I love you and have a good day because none of us knows what that day will bring. And going back to my day of stroke, I, I ran that morning and I was fine. And that night I'm lying in a hospital bed and I cannot talk and I cannot move my arm and I cannot move my leg. And that's how quick life changes for people. And when you, when you go through an experience like that, you think that life is just way too short. We don't go to bed angry and we don't leave the house angry. And it's something we live by. So for me, it was I needed to get back and I needed to live life to the fullest every single day of my life. And I forced myself. The doctor still said to me, you've got to take it easy. And I said, there's no time to take things easy. I've got to live this life now because tomorrow might not come for me. So this is what I've got today. And I just pushed myself. So I ran, ran the two oceans, um, finishing the top 50 of the half marathon that year, sixth, I think, in my age group. Um, in a, in, and that's a big field. Um, and decided to go back to duathlon. Um, and I was training for the Worlds in Adelaide, which was um, that year. So I went to Western Province Champs, North um, West Territory, Harting, um, and then two weeks before the SA Champs, I contracted shingles. Um, and the doctor said to me, you should not be racing. And I said to her, there's no way you can stop me now. So I finished the, the SA Champs, um, only finished third, which was a disappointment. But then I realized my body's telling me to slow down a little bit. There's yeah. more to life than what I'm busy doing right now. Um, so different perspective again. You do live every moment as um, it is your last but is there anything else you want to kind of add to it? I think the goal for us um, as new, still newbies in Australia, um, the next portion of this journey is our citizenship that um, we'll be applying for this year and how long that process will be, time will tell. Um, so becoming citizens of Australia and living in a country that has so much to offer, so many good opportunities for us and for my son and for Gary's children. For us, that's a big part. Um, getting this coffee shop up and it's up and running, but it's got to be not just good. It's got to be great. That's what we want for it. Um, and I think just. In my, my, my other job, um, where I work in medical devices, 
I love what I do. I've got a passion for what I do and, and changing people's lives. And um, what I do touches people's lives every single day. So for me, that's really important. Um, I've done the, the Bridge to Brisbane and I, I've done it for the Stroke Foundation not last year, the year before, and, and it's back up this year. Um, and it's it's one of the charities that... that lies very close to my heart and it's something I always like to try and, and contribute back to um, so I'll probably set myself a goal for, for that race again like I did two years ago um, I just I just I think want to tell people that when things happen in life it's what you make of it I always tell my son we all fall but you only fail if you don't get up yes up and, and taking the, the lemons that life give you, squeeze them and squeeze them hard. Make the lemonade, make the lemon meringue pie, whatever it is you want to do with that, but do something. That characterizes and that defines who you are more than the mistakes we make in life and the failures we have because we all have them. So just live life to the full. Make the most of every opportunity that comes your way. And never regret things that you've done because they're all just stepping stones on this journey we call life. And wherever that will take us, only the future knows. But we live now and in the present. So make the most of what today is for you. You know, Corinne, um, this has been one of the most amazing chats I've ever had with a person. You're so inspirational. And everything you have said, uh, I believe, is really going to touch people and inspire them to do exactly what you have mentioned. Grab every moment, live your fullest life, and not stumble. So, Corinne, I really can't thank you enough for being on fulfillment and I, I look forward to talking to you again in the future thank you Corinne thanks for having me until next time this is fulfillment with your host Dean Saffron peace and love everybody peace